This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back to Surgery IC Rounds, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the interpretation of arterial blood gases. This is uh, going to be a very introductory talk, and it's important when we talk about arterial blood gases that we look at that word, the interpretation, because unlike when you have somebody who has a, um, you look at their hemoglobin come back, comes back, and the hemoglobin is seven. Well, it's pretty clear what's going on there. They're anemic. Now, there's a lot of reasons why they're anemic, but you know that hemoglobin seven is indicative of a particular problem. Arterial blood gases are more challenging to most, and and perhaps could be even misleading in that there are several variables on that arterial blood gas. When we get arterial blood gas, we get things like the arterial pH. We get the partial pressure of carbon dioxide. We get the partial pressure of oxygen. We should get the bicarbonate as well, and typically that's a calculated bicarbonate, and often off we get a base deficit, and depending on how your particular um, uh, institution orders them or how you order them, you'll also get a serum lactate. Um, how you take all of those uh, tests on that arterial blood gas, all those results, um, they are really kind of not very helpful when taken individually. But when we interpret a blood gas, we have to take all of those variables and determine what's wrong with the patient and also look as to see uh, not only what's wrong with the patient, but what's the underlying cause and how can we go about best correcting it. Uh, and it's that interpretation of blood gases which I think gets some people very intimidated and uh, perhaps others very confused. Let's start first on the uh, pH. And the purpose of the uh, pH is really um, to identify uh, disease processes that have produced changes in blood pH. Uh, all identified abnormalities that are correlated with clinical circumstances and differential diagnosis can then be determined. Now, treatments that are necessary and effective should be direct, uh, towards, directed towards identification of those types of disease processes that have caused changes uh, in the arterial pH. And common difficulties in acid-base analysis and the source of clinical errors may arise from failure to recognizing some coexisting disorders. And this is where we get into people who you'll hear that will say somebody has a primary respiratory acidosis and a, um, a failure to compensate or a concomitant a metabolic acidosis. And this gets reasonably uh, confusing. Now, an effective approach to acid-base analysis will allow accurate identification of multiple simultaneous problems and promote an understanding of the underlying pathophysiology that resulted in an abnormal acid-base disorder. Now, let's describe or let's define some terms. First of all, let's talk about acidemia. Acidemia describes the presence of elevated hydrogen ion or low pH in the, in the arterial blood. Okay, acidemia. Alkalemia describes the condition of a decreased hydrogen ion or an elevated pH. Now, a patient may have an, a normal pH and acidemia alone or an alkalemia alone defined solely by looking at that pH on the blood gas. Now, since acidemia and alkalemia are defined by either having a low pH or an elevated pH. At any one time, a person, an individual patient, can only have either an acidemia or an alkalemia. You can't have an acidemia and an alkalemia occurring at the same time because the pH is either low or it's elevated, but it can't be both. 
Now, I know you say to yourself, now I've heard these, you know, how is an acidemia different than an acidosis? They must be the same. Well, they're, they're not. They're different. Now, an acidosis and alkalosis refers to the underlying disease process which increases or decreases that pH. Now, more than one etiology of an acidosis and an alkalosis may occur simultaneously in an individual patient. So this is the distinction between an acidemia and an acidosis. Acidemia is the person having a low uh, pH, and acidosis is the condition which caused that acidemia. And a person could have multiple conditions leading to that primary, that singular acidemia. Now, clinicians may use different methods to analyze acid-base situations. Each of these approaches uh, sequentially examine the individual respiratory and metabolic determinants of blood pH. In each method, the respiratory component depends on the same straightforward analysis of the PCO2. The most common analytical approach to acid-base disorders differ in their calculations of the metabolic determinants of pH. And if you want to be a a real technical purist, what will happen is you'll get a blood gas and you'll either get the formulas out or now they've got all these little um, computer programs built into your iPhone or your Blackberry uh, or what have you, your your palm device, and you can determine what the acid-base determination is without having to go through all the physiological formulas. The formula that is perhaps best known to those of us who took physiology in and, and undergraduate and medical school or even high school chemistry is the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation. Now, I'm going to say that I don't like to quote out formulas very often, but the, in the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation, we're looking at the pH. And the pH is derived from something called the pKa, and you add that to the log of the bicarbonate over um, the uh, PCO2 times 0.03. Now, that it's not really as, as relevant as you know, you understand that, but you understand that you memorize that equation. But you have to remember that acidemia occurs when really there is either a decrease in serum bicarbonate, which is a metabolic acidosis, or an increase in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide or respiratory acidosis. So a decrease in serum bicarbonate, metabolic acidosis, an increase in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, respiratory acidosis. Now, conversely, an alkalemia exists when there is either an increase in the serum bicarbonate, metabolic alkalosis, or a decrease in the partial pressure of carbon dioxide, a respiratory alkalosis. Why do we care about all of this? Why do we care if somebody has an acidosis or an acidemia or an alkalosis or an alkalemia? What is the impact on the overall physiology? Well, the effects of acidemia and alkalemia on organ function, as well as cellular metabolism, are really difficult to distinguish from the effects of the underlying disease process that leads to that condition and the changes in the pH. In general, most patients can pretty well tolerate subacute transient pH changes from a pH, say, 7.2 to 7.6, without any major permanent consequences. Rapid, severe pH changes, say, less than 7.2 or greater than 7.6, appear to be more likely to result in organ dysfunction as well as abnormal metabolism. In the case of mild acidemia, you'll see a sympathetic surge, and this can contribute to increased cardiac output, systemic oxygen delivery. However, this effect may not persist in severe acidemia, and subsequently there will be a decreased cardiac output, a vasodilation, which will predominate. Now, in general, it's assumed that the effects of acidemia or or alkalemia are independent whether or not disturbances is primary primary metabolic or respiratory or mixed acidemia or an alkalemia. 
Now, for example, a patient who is acutely ill and develops septic shock and a metabolic acidosis um, may be expected to experience earlier and more severe consequences of the acid-based disorder than, say, a patient who has, say, a chronic respiratory uh, acidosis from a chronic lung condition. There are several physiological effects of the acute hypercapnia or elevated in the CO2. These include uh, a decreased diaphragmatic contractility, uh, increased cerebral blood flow, as well as loss of consciousness. Now, let's just step back from this a little bit and consider uh, some clinical scenarios. Perhaps you're weaning somebody from the ventilator and there's an elevation of their PCO2. Well, you'll hear it often, and, and I've said this myself, is that what happens is you've got to elevate the PCO2 to get somebody to breathe, and that physiologically is uh, accurate. What happens is the way your brain typically determines whether you need to breathe is that the um, the PCO2 has to be elevated. This changes your, your pH arterially, drops your pH, and this changes, lowers the pH of your cerebral spinal fluid, and that stimulates your brain, hey, I need to breathe. All things in moderation, what happens if you elevate the PCO2 too much as you're trying to get this patient to, quote, to breathe? Well, you'll end up getting into this paradox because the things, the physiological effects of having that elevated PCO2 are things that are going to not really have you breathe very much. That's a decreased contractility of the diaphragm. Um, as well as a decreased loss of consciousness. The other thing you have to be very careful of is you're kind of, quote, weaning patients from the ventilator, a term that we don't like to use. We like to say we liberate people from the ventilator. But if you have somebody who has suffered a traumatic head injury or, say, a, a person who's admitted to an ICU because of a brain injury or loss of consciousness, and you start elevating that PCO2, well, that's an absolute contraindication in somebody who has a traumatic brain injury because that increases cerebral blood flow, that elevated PCO2. And if you're worried about somebody who has a brain injury, what does that elevation of cerebral blood flow uh, result in? It could potentially result in an increase in intracranial pressure. Now, in contrast, intentional hypoventilation in mechanically uh, ventilated patients appear to have fewer adverse consequences and is generally well tolerated. Uh, clinical studies in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome and uh, severe COPD, uh, protective of lung pro- or ventilated lung protective strategies, this has demonstrated that permissive hypercapnia did not as- adversely affect systemic vascular resistance. Permissive hypercapnia did not adversely affect cardiac output, and permissive hypercapnia did not adversely affect systemic oxygen delivery. Some of the references for this are McIntyre and colleagues from the Journal of Trauma, 1994, volume 37, pages 433 to 438, as well as Thorns and colleagues, uh, Intensive Care Medicine, 1996, volume 22, pages 182 to 191. So let's move on now to the actual analysis of the arterial blood gas. And I'd say that most experienced providers typically approach a blood gas in a very um, similar fashion. And then as you first look at the blood pH, you look at the PCO2, the bicarb, the anion gap, uh, and then you can pretty much determine the, the nature of the acid-base disorder at that point in time. Um, first step is, does the patient have an acidemia or alkalemia? Um, and if it does, really what's driving that? Is, is the pH, the bicarb, uh, is, is the anion gap normal or abnormal? Secondly, we're going to look at is, is the primary disorder um, respiratory uh, or is it metabolic? Let's use the example of a low arterial pH and you get somebody who has a pH on their blood gas of 7.2. Well, then you're going to determine is that you know going to be from an elevated PCO2, i.e. a respiratory acidosis, or they're going to have a low bicarb 
uh, in the case of someone who has septic shock or, or hypovolemic shock, and they've got a metabolic acidosis. Thirdly, is the meta is there uh, if a metabolic disorder is present, is the respiratory compensation appropriate? This is really a lot on us, particularly in people who are mechanically ventilated in the intensive care unit. If somebody is, say, in septic shock uh, or hypovolemic shock and uh, we are actively taking measures to correct their underlying metabolic disorder, well, that may take some time. It may take even several hours. And in the interim, a patient who is spontaneously awake and ventilating on their own, they would compensate for that metabolic acidosis by increasing their minute ventilation. They would breathe more often and more deeply, and they would try to alter their PCO2 to adjust for that metabolic acidosis. This is considered respiratory compensation. A patient who is intubated and sedated is not able to adequately compensate um, for a metabolic acidosis, and therefore if they are uncompensated, that's all on us. That's because we're failing to do an adequate job. Uh, if a respiratory disorder is present, is the metabolic compensation appropriate? This gets kind of neat, and again, we talked about some of the physiological equations. Um, some of the drug companies used to make these acid-base um, calculations and put them on a roller we used to carry it around, and as I've said earlier, now we've got all kinds of little pocket computers. You can carry it on your iPhone or your BlackBerry, and so you can determine what's the expected PCO2 with a particular metabolic acidosis. So at, um, a, a, a good rule of thumb is that if you have a bicarb, you take 1.5 times your bicarb, add 8 to it, and you'll be plus or minus 2 of your expected PCO2. So if you have, say, a bicarb of 15, you multiply that by 1.5, uh, add 8 to that, and that'll give you your expected PCO2. Um, now, Next we look at typically is, is the anion. Well, let's go back and look at some of these other uh, formulas. For If you have a metabolic alkalosis, for instance, instead of going by 1.5, if you're on the alkalosis side, you end up multiplying that bicarb by 0 0.7. And instead of adding 8, you add 21 to it. So you can see where there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to some of these, and that's why um, perhaps uh, having um, um, a... Um, a calculator or a crib sheet on, written on a ruler is sometimes helpful. Now, is the anion gap elevated? And we'll talk about what an anion gap is, and that helps us determine some other determinations of what is causing this condition. If the ion gap is elevated, is the change of ion gap uh, equal to the change in serum bicarbonate? If not, consider additional non-ion gap acidosis or alkalosis. Well, an anion gap is, like I've said, uh, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but what you do in an anion gap is you take your serum sodium. Sodium is the uh, ion in this serum that gives the greatest positive charge. And you subtract from that your negative ions, your, your two big negative ions, are chloride and bicarb. So sodium minus chloride minus bicarb. And you look to determine whether you have an elevated anion gap or not. What's normal? About 8 to 14. Now, lastly, determine whether or not the analysis support the clinical scenario. When you look at the blood gas, you're trying to figure out what's going on. Does this make sense to you? This, you could see that interpretation of a blood gas is a reasonably complicated process. And for this reason, like I said, a lot of places, uh, uh, when a blood gas returns, it's an immediate call to a provider. So if a bedside nurse gets a blood gas, they have to call that to a nurse practitioner or a physician uh, so the blood gas can be fully interpreted. Because these are, again, are not very straightforward 
problems. Now, let's let's dig into this a little bit more and talk about different types of metabolic acidosis. Um, metabolic acidosis, as we said, results from the accumulation of acid um, in the serum. This could occur in renal failure because you're not excreting the, the uh, um, hydrogen ion or loss of bicarbonate in, in cases such as diarrhea or an NG suction or as well as from the urine. Traditionally, metabolic acidosis has been divided into two types. There is a hyperchloremic uh, acidosis and an elevated anion gap uh, acidosis. Now, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, we've gotten some email about this because I mentioned this in an earlier podcast. Hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis is characterized by an increase in chloride concentration accompanied by a proportional decrease in bicarbonate concentration. Now, let's take that for a second. We have an elevated chloride and a decrease in serum bicarbonate. Now, let's go back to some basic chemistry. Chloride is a negative ion. Bicarb is a negative ion. When we talk about the as the anion gap, we're seeing that those are two relevant uh, ions in determining the anion gap. If one is elevated, is one down? Well, this goes back to some of the concepts of electroneutrality. Let's let's look at this a little bit more. Um, hyperchloremic non-ion gap acidosis may result from the loss of bicarbonate from the kidney or gut, or by the addition of an acid with chloride as an accompanying ion. The causes of hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis may be divided into renal and non-renal acidosis. The most common renal etiologies include renal tubular acidosis, while the most common non-renal, the most common non-renal etiologies are gastrointestinal bicarbonate losses. So let's look at some of the uh, causes of hyperchloremic non-ion gap metabolic acidosis. And again, it makes sense that it would be non-ion gap because as the chloride goes up, the bicarbonate goes down. Causes, uh, say the losses of bicarbonate, things like diarrhea, urinary diversion, somebody has an ileoconduit for like a bladder cancer, surgical drainage of the small bowel, pancreas, or uh, the biliary tree. Uh, uh, you may be giving somebody an acidifying substance, basically uh, uh, as, uh, acidic uh, types of, of fluids. What are those? Hyperalimentation is one. Sodium chloride resuscitation. This is a big one. And this is a big one a lot in burns. It's a big one a lot in, in some trauma patients who get a lot of chloride. Uh, large amounts of chloride administered. What happens is you basically are reabsorbing chloride over bicarbonate in the distal tubule because of the amount of chloride you're presenting to the distal tubule. And that creates a hyperchloremic non-ion gap metabolic acidosis. It is for this reason that particularly in burn patients, we suggest you don't do a resuscitation with chloride or with saline but with lactate ringers uh, and you'll, that is a, a classic um, I would say a rookie error that people will make is they give these people a lot of uh, saline they develop a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis and the first thing people say is ah they're acidotic therefore they need more fluids it's not that they need more fluids they need a different type of fluid and uh, this is a, an example of I call it iatrogenesis imperfecta um, because you're misinterpreting the data and you end up giving people more fluids. They end up in pulmonary edema. They have fluid problems. They get things like abdominal compartment syndrome uh, and their abdomens open up. All these things are things we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. Also, you can get uh, hyperchloric metabolic acidosis from acidifying substances such as uh, ammonium chloride administration, calcium chloride, um, uh, magnesium chloride, all the different types of renal tubular acidosis, RTA type 1, type 2, type 4. 
Always, uh, those can all cause a hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis as well. Now, let's get into this topic of the anion gap uh, acidosis. Now, we said the anion gap is calculated by uh, taking the big positive ion in the, in the blood and subtracting the big negative ions. So the pluses minus the negatives. The, the, the principally big positive ion in the blood is sodium. Uh, sodium, about 130 milliequivalents per liter. We think about our other um, ion that we talk about a lot in the blood. It's positive. That's what potassium. What's normal potassium? Three and a half, four. Not a big contributor. So we take our big positive minus our big negatives. What are our big negatives? Well, chloride and bicarb chloride and bicarbonate, and that gives us our anion gap. Now, when you have an a elevated anion gap, that basically reflects unmeasured negative ions, including things like phosphates, sulfates, lactate, as well as negatively charged proteins, including albumin. Um, and ion gap acidosis occurs as a result of accumulation of hydrogen ion with an unmeasured anion. So remember your basic chemistry. You have something like, let's take the acid, hydrochloric acid, HCl. Okay, The hydrogen is accompanied with something Negative. It has to maintain that electroneutrality. Sulfuric acid, H2SO4, right? What happens? You've got your hydrogen ion. It's accompanied with the negative, uh, uh, the, the negative molecule. As I've said, a normal anion gap is between 8 and 14. Um, and um, a, a normal anion gap will be decreased by hypoalbuminemia as well as proteinemias. So again, if you have a low albumin, it's going to drop the anion gap. And why? Is because that's one of the the negative. We said it's one of the unmeasured um, unmeasured cations. Hypoalbuminemia is the expected anion gap decreases by two and a half for every one gram decrease in serum albumin concentration. So things with albumin, remember uh, about calcium and albumin, there you have conversion factor of uh, 0.8 uh, correction. Here you have a correction factor of 2.5 uh, per one decrease in your albumin. Now, let's get into lactic acidosis. This is another topic that comes up a lot uh, in the management of patients with acid-base disorders. Lactic acid results from a large number of clinical conditions, including septis, septic shock, hypoxemia, and regional tissue ischemia. When we think about our basic energetics of how our bodies and how our cells use energy, uh, we can go back to our undergraduate biology and the, uh, the hated question, imagine you were a glucose molecule. Well, what happens to a glucose molecule? as the body begins to make energy from it. The glucose molecule first goes through the process of glycolysis, and we'll spare you all the ugly steps, but it goes from glycolysis, and it ends up as um, pyruvate. Pyruvate then enters the Krebs cycle, or some people may know as the citric acid cycle, and then it, um, the carbon moieties then spit out the other end through something called oxidative phosphorylation, or what people call the electron transport chain. This produces roughly a net of 36 ATP. Now, keep in mind that, that the oxidative phosphorylation basically relies on oxygen, um, as does, and so what happens is when that lower part of the energetics does not function because it's lack of oxygen, the Krebs cycle and, and the electron transport chain shuts down. So you have glucose going to pyruvate 
in the process of glycolysis. Krebs cycle shuts down, electron transport chain shuts down. Well, what does the body do with all this pyruvate as it builds up? Well, it goes through an enzyme called pyruvate dehydrogenase, and it converts it into something called lactate. So, if you're measuring lactate and all the oxygen... Um, all the oxygen-consuming reactions are in place and working, will you see a lot of lactate? No, you won't, because that pyruvate would rather go through the Krebs cycle and electron transport chain and make more ATP than just the two that it's getting out of glycolysis. But if all that stuff shuts down because there's no oxygen, where does the pyruvate go? It goes to lactate. Lactate eventually goes to the liver, where it goes through a cycle called the Cori cycle. And this is how you typically get a lactic acidosis. And when we want to see that if somebody's having poor oxygen delivery, we can get a lactate. And it means that the cells aren't getting enough lactate. And that's why you see it in conditions such as sepsis, septic shock, hypoxemia, as well as tissue ischemia. Now, the presence of lactic acidosis is a prognostic indicator in shock. It may be used as a marker of clinical response in early resuscitation of septic patients. Now, the lactic acidosis caused by decrease in oxygen delivery and decreased perfusion is known as a type A lactic acidosis. Now, there is a type B lactic acidosis that occurs in the absence of poor oxygen delivery. This typically will occur uh, in uh, patients who have um, certain... Um, um, Certain medications can cause this, retroviral drugs and so forth. I've seen, seen it a handful of times, but that's something to be mindful of. If it looks like your patient has a persistent, ele, persistently elevated lactate, but all your other indicators are saying that you're delivering enough oxygen, um, you might not be dealing with a type A lactic acidosis, meaning that you're delivering enough oxygen and then you have probably a type B lactic acidosis. I remember the first time I saw one of these, I was a, a fellow in... Um, um, critical care, and what was going on was I had a patient who had an elevated lactate. I gave him fluid, I gave him blood, and I put a PA catheter in him eventually. And the PA catheter showed that I had good um, SVO2s, I had good uh, delivery of oxygen, I looked like I had a good reasonable um, uh, oxygen uh, consumption, but my lactate was elevated, and that's what drove us to the diagnosis of a type B. Now it is plausible that sepsis drugs, toxic ingestions, and neoplastic drugs, uh, as well as neoplastic diseases, can produce lactic acidosis through the direct effects on mitochondrial metabolism, independently of oxygen availability or aerobic metabolism. That would then fall then into a type uh, B lactic acidosis. Treatment of lactic acidosis involves rapid correction of the underlying disorder and hemodynamic support to restore perfusion. Let's talk a little bit about alkali therapy for the treatment of metabolic acidosis. key thing we need to remember is we need to treat the underlying cause. So if, if a patient is septic or is anemic or hypovolemic and they're having a metabolic acidosis and we give them something such as sodium bicarbonate, are we really treating the underlying condition? And the answer is no. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for some time know that I have kind of a saying that if the muffler falls off the car, we like to fix the muffler, not just turn up the radio. And, you know, that is just an example of how absolutely absurd sometimes be just symptomatic therapy can be. And that may be what we're doing. If somebody has a acid-base disorder and they have an acidosis and you just give them bicarb without an intense investigation as to what's causing that or correction of that underlying condition, you're not really doing the patient any good. Now, in the cases of severe metabolic acidosis, typical treatments, um, you know, kind of the, the more uh, symptomatic treatments, 
uh, include sodium bicarbonate and a wide range of other kind of alkali buffalo uh, solutions. Arguments in favor of these treatments suggest that bicarbonate may more quickly restore cardiac output, improve systemic vascular, uh, me, improve systemic vasodilation, and counterbalance the negative effects of acidosis on individual organ dysfunction. While there is widespread acceptance that alkali therapy is indicated in certain chronic disorders, including things like renal tubular acidosis, there is very little evidence that alkali therapy improves clinical outcomes for critically ill patients. Now, animal data does suggest that bicarbonate administration increases pH, but has little effect on hemodynamic parameters and may actually contribute to worsening of the cardiac output. The references I'd point you to for that are Graf and colleagues in the American Journal of Physiology, 1985, uh, volume 249, pages F630 to F635, as well as Graf and colleagues' uh, Science, 1985, um, to, uh, excuse me, 1985, volume 227, pages 754 to 756. Now, looking at human studies, um, investigations in humans have shown that bicarbonate infusion may increase pH, yet does not consistently improve hemodynamics, and may contribute to an increase in blood PCO2. And that's a study by Cooper and colleagues in Annals of Internal Medicine, 1990, Volume 112, pages 492 to 498. Another uh, alkali agent that uh, we use with some regularity in our burn patients is uh, trishydroxymethyl uh, aminomethane, uh, known as... um, and uh, equal molar carb- uh, carbonate sodium bicarbonate. The Europeans call, they call that carbicarb. Uh, and they've been evaluating human studies. They do show some positive effects on hemodynamics, but neither of these agents have been evaluated uh, for effectiveness uh, of, on clinical endpoints, such as mortality. So there's not a whole lot of clarity that whether somebody has a lactic acidosis, whether they benefit from administration of sodium bicarbonate. In fact, some have actually represented, excuse me, uh, rep- um, reported against its use. And uh, excellent uh, review on this is by Forsyth and colleagues in Chest in 2000, Volume 117. Uh, pages 260 to 267. Now I want to change gears a little bit and talk about metabolic alkalosis. And first of all, when we talk about alkalosis and acidosis, I want to talk about you know what goes on in your gut when somebody tells you somebody has a severe acidosis or a severe alkalosis. My opinion or my bias is that often we're too prejudiced against an acidosis and that we, we get a lot of energy going to look for the cause and correction of an acidosis and all too often we perhaps ignore the alkalosis. That a pH of 7.6 does not really initiate the same kind of trepidation that a pH of 7.2 might. Uh, being mindful of how the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve works, that in the situation of an acidotic condition, say a pH of 7.2, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifts to the right, which is good. So when blood gets into a uh, 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 acidemic environment, what does it do? Well, it basically shifts the curve to the right, a good curve, and what that does is that allows oxygen to release from the hemoglobin more easily. Now, in an alkalemic condition, what does that do to the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve? It shifts it, it shifts it to the left, which means hemoglobin binds to that oxygen more tightly. doesn't give it up. And therefore, a peripheral tissue bed is basically deprived of more oxygen 
given the same calculated auction delivery. So something to keep in mind. Now, maintenance and persistence of metabolic alkalosis results from failure of the kidney to excrete bicarbonate because of hypovolemia, hypokalemia, and mineral corticoid excess. Now, some of the causes of metabolic alkalosis, we have this really called uh, chloride-responsive and chloride-resistant. Chloride-responsive causes of uh, metabolic alkalosis include things like uh, vomiting, NG suctioning, villus adenoma of the colon, uh, chloride wasting diarrhea, watery diarrhea, hypo, oh, it's called hypokalemic achlorhydric uh, syndrome, uh, diuretic therapy, uh, things such as citrate anticoagulation and massive transfusion, acetate and parental nutrition. You have the chloride resistance. Things such as hyperaldosteronism, Cushing syndrome, exogenous steroid use, uh, hypokalemia as well. Now, respiratory compensation for metabolic alkalosis results in hypoventilation, and this produces an elevation of the PCO2. The causes of metabolic alkalosis are divided into chloride-responsive and chloride-resistant. We've talked about a little bit what those are. Generally, chloride-responsive disorders will respond rapidly to intravascular volume replacement with sodium chloride giving an acidifying solution, something to be mindful of when we go back and talk about resuscitations. The most common cause of metabolic alkalosis include diuretic administration, vomiting, NG suctioning, corticosteroids, hypokalemia, and a refeeding syndrome. Treatment of metabolic alkalosis includes volume resuscitation, potassium replacement, removal of the underlying cause if possible. Patients with severe alkalosis or who require continued diuresis may benefit from an acidifying infusion or giving the patient Diamox, um, respectively. So that's our, our, our brief introduction to acid-based disorders and uh, uh, arterial blood gas interpretation. Going back to some of the more editorial-type comments is that a blood gas is a component of lab results. It is a panel. It is a panel of pH, a PCO2, a PO2, a bicarbonate, a base deficit. And all of those numbers taken as one allow you to make an interpretation of a blood gas. Didn't get a whole lot into all the different formulas. We mentioned them briefly. But what's key is you first identify is the pH up or down. If the pH is up or down, then you define out what's really driving that. If my pH is down, do I have an elevated PCO2 or do I have a decreased bicarbonate? And if so, why is that? Search for that underlying cause and correct it. If I have somebody who has a bicarb of 15 and they have an acidosis and I'm sitting there and I look at their PCO2 and it's 35 or 40, that's normal. It doesn't have a star next to it. If it doesn't have a star next to it, it must be normal, right? No, not in that particular case. That patient has not compensated adequately. And if I'm driving that ventilator, I have failed to compensate for that patient. And therefore, in that particular patient, I would have a mixed acid-base disorder. I would have a primary metabolic acidosis with a uncompensated respiratory acidosis. And that failure to compensate would be my fault because I haven't turned up the ventilator appropriately. Likewise, you could have somebody who has a respiratory acidosis and they haven't quite compensated for their metabolics. They may have a PCO2 of 60 and their bicarb is sitting at 24. Again, the bicarb is normal. It doesn't have a star next to it. But in that physiological condition, that bicarb should be elevated. That's a fail to compensate. 
not something that happens rather acutely. Metabolic compensations take some time. So it's for this that I actually have the bias that, and we don't do this in my own unit, and I think perhaps we should consider that, is that a blood gas really should be called their provider. That when it comes back, it has to be taken in a whole lot of picture. You just can't say the patient has an elevated PCO2. We need to drill down as to what the reason, why it's elevated, and how it interacts with all of the other variables on the arterial blood gas. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. Once again, my name is Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. If you enjoyed the podcast, find it useful, by all means, please go back to the uh, iTunes page on Apple, uh, iTunes site for IC Rounds, and leave some positive feedback. Uh, perhaps let other listeners know. We also have a group on uh, Facebook uh, on IC Rounds. My name is Jeffrey Guy. Thanks for li- listening. Have a great day.